This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Kiora and a very warm welcome to Voices from Antarctica. I'm Alison Balance, and this podcast series is about Antarctica, the coldest, driest, and windiest continent on the planet. But when the wind is not blowing, it's also the quietest place on the planet. It's so quiet, there aren't any coloured lights on my sound recorder. It's so quiet, I can actually hear my own heart beating. Welcome to the Great White Silence. There's no noise until I make noise. Leaving the black rock now on the white, icy snow. This episode is brought to you by the sounds of snow and ice. But of course snow and ice don't make sound. I have to make sounds with the snow and ice. And there's icy snow and soft crunchy snow. It's not quite cold enough to squeak. Crunch of ice crystals. And one of the things that, that amazes me is how much it just changes from one footstep to the next. Slick ice from a melt pond that's refrozen. Don't think I'll go ice skating. Now, from little patches of windblown snow and a frozen puddle, let's broaden our horizons to the whole of Antarctica. The rocky continent of Antarctica is draped in an immense blanket of ice that covers an area as big as the United States and Mexico combined. Actually, 
I haven't got my bedding analogy quite right. It's not a blanket, it's a sheet. An ice sheet. A 14 million square kilometre sheet of ice that averages about 2 kilometres thick and in places is up to 4.7 kilometres thick. If it all melted, it contains enough water to raise global sea levels by nearly 60 metres. And all that ice, it starts life as little flakes of snow. The snow has built up over millions of years and been compressed into ice. The ice then flows downhill, basically from the South Pole to the coast, and keeps on flowing out into deep basins to float in the sea. Much of it, like any good iceberg, underwater. At this point, they become known as ice shelves. When I was at Cape Crozier meeting emperor penguins back in episodes four and five, I marvelled at the ice cliffs that were sheltering the penguin colony. These were the seaward edge of the Ross ice shelf, the largest floating ice shelf in the world, the size of Spain. I got to have a short walk on the ice shelf, which was pretty cool. But some scientists at Scott Base are heading out to spend weeks working on it. I've tracked down glaciologist Hugh Hawken from Victoria University of Wellington, who is making his 12th visit to Antarctica. So what's it like working down here? It's definitely testing. Everything, as you will have experienced, takes a little bit longer. It's also hugely rewarding. I think what we do isn't particularly easy. It's not particularly fun. But I think it's important. And what adds to that importance is the the people you get to do it with. There's a great camaraderie, both on the base and in the field camps and a sense of a, a common goal, which, which I find very rewarding. So I am talking to you at Scott Base, but you are waiting to go somewhere. Where are you waiting to go? So we are waiting for a, a plane to take us out to Kamai Stream. And Kamai Stream is in West Antarctica. And an ice stream is it's often described as a river of ice. It's fast-moving ice that's bounded on its sides by slow-moving ice as opposed to a glacier, which usually comes down through the mountains and is bounded on its sides by rock. But it's important that we understand ice streams because over 90% of the ice that leaves Antarctica does so by way of ice streams. Okay, that's a lot of Antarctica's ice. It is, yep. And as we know, the rate at which ice is leaving the continent has been increasing. So we really need to get a gauge on, on how these rivers of ice work, how these ice streams work. Those ice streams are on the continent? That's correct, yeah. So we separate the ice in Antarctica into the ice sheets, the the West Antarctic ice sheet and the East Antarctic ice sheet, and then they feed ice into the ice shelves, which are the floating portion of Antarctica. So most of these ice streams, the the ones we're studying, um, drain into the Ross ice shelf, which is the world's largest. So we're sitting on one edge of the Ross ice shelf at the moment at Scott Base, and we're going to go right to the other edge, right to the coastline or, or the point at which that ice goes afloat um, out of West Antarctica. So how fast does a river of ice move? Mm. If we think about one of our iconic New Zealand glaciers, like Fox or Franz Josef, they move at about 400 metres a year. And if you look at them, they're like big tumbles of ice coming down the mountains, aren't they? 
And if we look at these ice streams in West Antarctica, they're orders of magnitude larger. They're tens of kilometres wide, hundreds of kilometres long, and they move at similar speeds to Fox or Franz Josef. So if you think about that in terms of the, the volume of ice they're moving, it's really a huge volume that's being pushed out into the ice shelves and into the oceans. So why are you interested in this ice stream? Mm. So my colleague Christina Holber states it nicely. She says CAM is, is fascinating because it's not doing anything. So most of these ice streams are flowing very rapidly, as I described, but CAM ice stream ceased flowing about 150 years ago. And we can see from a record left in the ice shelf that these ice streams will switch on and they'll switch off over timescales of hundreds of years. And because there aren't that many of these things, there's, there's five of them draining into the Ross ice shelf, when one of them switches on or one of them switches off, it makes a significant difference to, to what we call the, the mass balance of the ice sheet, the, which is like your bank balance. It's the amount of snowfall is, is your pay coming in, and then the ice stream flow and, and the melt and carving of icebergs is your money going out, is the ice coming out. So do you know why it stopped flowing? Is it jammed on something? We think that CAM stopped flowing because it lost some water at the base of the ice stream. So these ice streams flow quickly because there's very little holding them up on what we call the ice bed. So that interface where the ice meets the rock, we think beneath CAM it's this very sludgy material that it's very easy to, for the ice stream to slip over the top of. That easily deformed material has a lot of water in it, and we think the water was diverted to another ice stream, and that caused the CAM ice stream to stagnate. So it's lost its lubrication, basically. That's the theory, yeah. So what are you going to be doing when you get out there? So this season we are starting a hot water drilling operation, so that means we're going to drill through about 600 metres of ice into the, the shallow ocean cavity that sits near what we call the grounding zone of, of CAM ice stream. And the grounding zone is that point where the ice goes afloat, where our, our grounded ice sheet becomes the floating ice shelf. And that ocean cavity is important because it's where we deliver a lot of heat to the base of the ice shelf. And the ice shelf is holding back these ice streams. So we say they're buttressing the ice streams. So if you think of the buttresses on Notre Dame holding the building up, these ice shelves are actually holding back the ice streams and if we get rid of our ice shelves if we lose our ice shelves because of warming our oceans or increasing the rates of carving of icebergs from our ice shelves we allow the grounded ice to to flow more quickly and this has been seen on the antarctic peninsula where it's warmer we've lost ice shelves and the grounded ice has then sped up and and contributed to sea level I loved the casual off-handedness of Hugh going, we're going to melt through 600 metres of ice using hot water. So now, of course, I want to find out how do you do that? And Darcy Mandino is the person who can tell us. This, by the way, is his ninth time in Antarctica. Can you explain to me what a hot water drill is and how are you going to get through the ice? It's a glorified car washer essentially so we've got six heaters approximately 120 kilowatts each and they're all working in tandem we make enough hot water about 80 degrees celsius that's 
you know, we're looking at about two bathtubs worth of water a minute that we run through a nozzle and it essentially blows a hole through the ice and then the, the hole's set by um, these metal plates that allow the hole to be a diameter that allow the instruments to fit into it and it all runs on diesel well we actually we use an 8 which is the Antarctic version of diesel and uh, it's all run by pretty well much standard industrial type systems that you would expect to find in any, any factory in New Zealand so we've got a, a computer that monitors and, and records the, the various parameters that we're watching and then we just sit in front of a shiny box and um, watch the numbers slowly count as, as this thing lowers into the ground do you have to do anything special to deal with the low temperatures here? Yeah, we always take that into account. Metals shrink at different rates, and so these stresses induced into those materials. Plastics behave differently. They become more brittle. Some steels become more brittle in the cold, so we've got to be conscious of that. Oil becomes thicker, so engines you know, need more consideration about warming them up and, and looking after them and preheating stuff and so there's all these little sort of systems so you what ends up happening if you've got a say a 26 kilowatt engine diesel engines you know reasonable size you'll then need a little two kilowatt honda um, suitcase generator that runs a little fan heater or something like that and put that in the engine box to, to heat that space up first and give it a good Warm soak and electronics are terrible in the cold, especially once it gets below minus 30. Batteries are another real issue, and I'm quite sure you're aware of that with your recording oh, material. Batteries hate the cold. They hate the cold, and especially when you're trying to charge them in the cold. You know, you can charge them in the warm, and they'll work okay then in the cold, but then trying to charge them in the cold, oh, yeah. So that's a big part of the, what you have to think about as well. So you're melting lots of water. Yes. Creating hot water. Drilling this hole, how long is it going to take you to get through 600 metres if things go well? If things go well, the hole itself should take about uh, 12, 13, maybe 14 hours. That's pretty fast. It's why we hot water drill. It does give you quick access to the ocean cavity or to, to wherever your target is. Yeah, but it does take an enormous amount of fuel. But we, what we try to do is we, we do circulate the water within the system. So we, we've got a water well. The pump itself, the submersible pump, is something most farmers in New Zealand would be familiar with. It returns the water to the surface, um, and then we just circulate that back through our hot water heaters, and so we're not having to melt snow and ice, and, and it saves a bit of energy that way. And then once we get to the ocean cavity, of course, we've got unlimited water. How big's your hole? In this case, we'll be drilling a hole 350 millimetres in diameter, so 35 centimetres. We expect the hole to close at around about 5 millimetres or thereabouts per hour, Okay, so you make a hole, the scientists get to lower the instruments down basically on a rope? Essentially, yeah, or they've got winches of various descriptions. and um, yeah. They stick their instruments down, and in the meantime the hole is icing up again. That's correct, yeah. So it's, it's a race against time. I mean, some of these instruments are quite expensive, so they don't really want to be mucking around. They turn into very expensive anchors. So, yeah, the idea is to avoid that. So how many weeks are you going to keep the hole open for? Uh, it's two weeks. Um, in theory. So how's all your gear got there? Does, has it got there by plane or is it being dragged there? Yeah, it's being dragged there. So the, uh, the three piston bullies currently trundling across the Ross Ice Shelf as we speak and Hugh and I will rock star in and fly. We'll hopefully get there prior to them arriving at site and I mean, we'll start getting tents set up and get a little bit of comfort in the place so that you know the poor old guys that have been driving across the Ross Shelf have got a warm cup of tea to come to. Yeah, hopefully that happens tomorrow, but we're at the the call of the weather gods, and that's their call, so... Well, good luck out there. Thank you, yeah. Should be easy. It's just a hole. 
<laughs> Hello, I'm on the pressure ridges out in front of Scott Base. This is where the sea ice meets the land and gets all pushed up. And it's where the seals hang out. There are flags marking our safe route, and there's a bit of a whistling breeze today. I don't know, it's about 15 knots. I think the wind chill's about minus 19. And this bamboo stake is having a good old whistle as well as a flap. So the whistling flag is one of many marking safe walking routes around Scott Base. And the three piston bullies, the machines making the traverse all the way across the ice shelf with the CAM ice stream equipment, they're following their own safe route. It's a route pre-chosen for them by Daniel Price. I'm the Traverse Navigator for New Zealand. I'm responsible for safe travel out on the Ross Ice Shelf. And my principal job is to stop us driving into crevasses. First of all, you better tell me, what's the Traverse? So, the Traverse was started two years ago now, and it's the first time New Zealand has done the Traverse since Hillary in the Transantarctic Expedition. And they left Scott Base in 57 or 58, I think. And so, drove to the South Pole. And drove to the South Pole, yeah. It's the classic when Hillary rushed in ahead of Fuchs. But this Traverse has been initiated for science. So there's a big project called the Ross Ice Shelf Project and now moving into what's called the Antarctic Science Platform. And basically we're trying to access the seabed underneath the Ross Ice Shelf. So the Ross Ice Shelf is an area of ice um, about the size of Spain, um, just south of Scott Base here. And the objective of, of the Traverse is to, to move all of that um, critical drilling gear and scientific equipment across the ice shelf to specific locations and then we can start drilling. The Traverse has already left this year, and this is the, the third Traverse um, over the last three years. So they're now about 400 k's south of Scott Base, and they cover about 100 kilometres a day, and the entire distance is about 1,200 kilometres. So it can take about two weeks to get out there. It's pretty slow going. We're doing about 11 k's an hour. So they're just driving on ice the whole way? Yeah, yeah. Snow out there is a just huge expanse of snow as far as the eye can see so it becomes a bit of a tough mental challenge after a while so we're driving sort of 11 to 12 hours a day get into a pretty solid routine and then there are critical areas on the way where crevassing occurs and that's kind of where I come in and another one of my colleagues um, to make sure that we we cross those areas safely it was a big process to, to plan this traverse and of course since the times of Hillary, a lot's changed with technology. So we used a satellite that's run by the German uh, Aerospace Center, and it's able to basically detect crevassing from space. So it's, it's, a, it's a radar satellite, and it fires a pulse of energy at the Earth's surface. And then looking at the differences in the energy as it comes back to the satellite, we can work out where the crevasses are. So it's, it's an incredible tool because can't see the crevassing on the Ross Ice Shelf. Um, in the mountains in New Zealand, you can often tell where the crevassing is from slumping on the snow bridges, but out there there's, there's no surface expression at all. So we need to use all the information we can get now to try and avoid the crevassing. It's all about avoidance because when you, if you have to start going through crevasse fields, it gets incredibly difficult, and that's where you have to start blowing things up, which is a big logistical undertaking. So you've got some crevasse work coming up, I think. So what are you off to do today? Yeah, so this, this year uh, I've, I was taking part in the Traverse the last two years. But this year I'm working with uh, the United States Antarctic Program. So the South Pole Traverse is doing, that takes fuel to the South Pole? Yes, correct, yep. So they do three traverses every year, shifting fuel down to the South Pole Station. Um, they used to fly fuel in, but it's incredibly 
inefficient. So they put a route in in the early 2000s. And it's quite funny, just 40 kilometers south of Scott Base here, we kind of hit one of the most dangerous areas as soon as we leave on the first day. And that area is so dangerous that we have to actually go in and modify the crevasses and uh, modify, blow them up. So the crevasses, uh, they're pretty big, you know, they're sort of eight to 10 meters wide. Um, but so they can swallow vehicles. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of a lot of people's sort of nightmare i guess the ground opening up underneath them and disappearing so we 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 go in to make sure that that doesn't happen so crevasse is is basically caused by dynamics in the ice and a a big crack opens up in the ice and they can be sort of 50 60 meters deep at least and what happens is a bridge of snow forms across the top which completely conceals the crevasse so you have no idea it's there so we have to use special equipment to identify where they are and we've also started using satellite imagery to work out where these crevasses are then we remove the 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 bridge which can be meters thick tons and tons of snow so the only way to do that effectively is with explosives and then um, it's a big job to then fill in the crevasse using snow from safe areas around the crevasse and, and literally fill it right up fill that hole right up to the sort of width of a road and then the R-traverse and the U.S. South Pole Traverse can, can pass straight through and they don't have to worry about it. So you're going to make the shear zone safe and then what are you going to do? Yeah, be, be a part of that for sure. And then um, I come back to Scott Base, um, sort of... Have uh, a shower. Have a shower, <laughs> sort out the hygiene, and then um, I'll f- uh, fly out to where the Traverse goes to, that 1,200 kilometres away, and they will have then hopefully nearly completed the drilling project. And then it's a case of packing up the camp and driving the Traverse back to Scott Base. So Daniel is making sure the gear gets to and from the deep field camp safely. Darcy is going to drill a hole through 600 metres of ice. And what exactly are Hugh and the other scientists looking for down that hole? We start with some pretty fundamental observations, things like temperature and salinity, and then we move on to things within the water column, as in microbiology, what's living within the water column there what's coming out from underneath the grounded ice sheets in terms of subglacial water. So that's testing our theory of whether or not CAM ice stream has, has lost water at the bed. And, and we also have a, a small robot with our NASA collaborators that's going to be swimming around and imaging the base of the ice. And then we also, um, a major part of um, the Antarctic Science Platform project is to look at the history of the Ross Ice Shelf. So we'll be taking... At first, just short sedimentary cores, and those cores, they capture the, the geology, the layering that tells us whether or not there was an ice shelf there in the past and the state of the ice sheet in the past. And we expect to go back just uh, thousands to maybe a few tens of thousands of years with, with this history, with these cores. At this point, Darcy, the driller, has to turn his attention from drilling through ice to drilling through sediment. And we're not expecting to get a very deep core. We may, if we're lucky, get two metres. And if we do, that'll be exceptional because there's almost nothing known about this place. So you obviously can't use hot water for that. No, no, that's right. So we use um, uh, sediment tools. Uh, We use a a gravity corer, which is essentially a tube that you drop from a height and you let it free fall, hits the the seafloor and whatever is stuck up the tube, that's what you get. Then we've got a hammer corer, so that gives us a little bit of opportunity to drive that tube further into the seafloor. So bang it into the bang, mud. Bang it into the mud, yes. And then um, we've also got a vibra corer, which the um, Chinese have kindly um, come out with, essentially a tube that vibrates its way. Using Makita batteries, like most folk in New Zealand would be familiar with their battery tools, it's exactly the same batteries we use, and we just 
put them in a pressure tube so it's all watertight and send it down the hole and, and, it, and it goes switch, mm-hmm. switch it on and it vibrates through, yeah. And then uh, in subsequent years, we're looking to go back and drill a, a deeper record and look at times when we know the Earth was as warm as we expect it to become in the coming centuries so we can see the state of the ice sheet in those conditions. There are two ice sheets in Antarctica? Yeah, so we talk about the, the West Antarctic ice sheet and the East Antarctic ice sheet. Uh, the West Antarctic ice sheet is the smaller of the two, uh, but it's considered to be particularly vulnerable because the, the base of the ice sheet, it's, it's grounded well below sea level. So if we were to lose this ice sheet, there would be essentially just a, an archipelago of islands left behind. And this, this configuration where the, the base of the ice sheet is well below sea level and the base of the ice sheet slopes inland means the ice sheet is, is very vulnerable to small changes in sea level or, or the loss of floating ice shelves. And that's termed a, a marine ice sheet instability. So the West Antarctic ice sheet is a marine ice sheet and it's the only one on the planet and it's considered to be unstable. So from a climate change point of view, it's a bit of a canary in a coal mine? You could certainly say that, yep. And parts of the ice sheet are more vulnerable than others. So we already have parts of the West Antarctic ice sheet where we see the margin of the ice sheet is retreating and there is some theory that shows if that margin starts to retreat, it will continue to retreat at an accelerating rate until the ice sheet is lost. So from a climate change point of view, it is really crucial to understand what's happening here in Antarctica, isn't it? It is, and we're, we've known that for a while now, and it's becoming increasingly apparent as we acquire more and more data on the state of these ice sheets. And particularly concerning to me is the increased mass loss of, of the ice sheets over recent decades. And we, we used to be in a position where there was quite a bit of uncertainty around these, these values, and now the, the evidence is quite clear that the Ice sheets are a major contributor to sea level rise right now and they're anticipated to be a much greater contributor in the future. When it comes to global sea level rise, warm water melting the Antarctic ice shelves is not a good thing. But when it comes to working in a remote field camp on the Ross Ice Shelf, it turns out that warm water can be a very nice thing and not just for drilling a hole through the ice. Here's an email from Hugh. Due to the massive amounts of hot water required to drill through the ice shelf and the ingenuity of our field engineers, a makeshift shower was erected in the drill tent. The surrounds were tarpaulins zip-tied to scaffolding tube, the shower head had been scavenged from Scott-based spares and the water was wonderfully hot. This was an exception. In my 12 seasons in Antarctica, this was the first time I had showered in the deep field. Thank you, Hugh. That sounds like a great shower. Hugh Horgan and Darcy Mandino are from the Antarctic Research Centre at Victoria University of Wellington, and they are part of the team that has just won the 2019 Prime Minister's Science Prize. Well done to the whole team. Daniel Price blows up crevasses for a job. I'm Alison Balance, and this is Voices from Antarctica from RNZ. A big thanks to Antarctica New Zealand for getting me to the frozen continent and to all the people who shared their Antarctic experiences. You can find all the episodes of Voices from Antarctica at rnz.co.nz on the Our Changing World webpage. Or search for RNZ Our Changing World on your favourite podcast app. Catch you next time. Kia ora mai.
and for making it this far, here's a little audio contribution from some little Adelie penguins. The little pitter-patter of a deli penguin feet on sea ice. Yeah, same to you. Bye. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. Or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.